0: Chapter 4, Sidebars of Across the Reef, The Marine Assault of Tarawa, by Joseph H. Alexander. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. LVT-2 and LVT-A2 Amphibian Tractors The LVT-2, popularly known as the Water Buffalo, was built to improve upon shortcomings in the design of the Marine Corps' initial amphibian vehicle, the LVT-1, The new vehicle featured a redesigned suspension system with rubber-tired road wheels and torsion springs for improved stability and a smoother ride. The powertrain was standardized with that of an M3A1 Stuart Light tank. This gave the LVT2 greater power and reliability than its predecessor and, combined with the new W-shaped treads, gave it greater propulsion on land and in the water. The new vehicle could also carry 1,500 pounds more cargo than the original LVT-1. The LVT-2 entered production in June 1942, but did not see combat until Tarawa in November 1943. The Marines used a combination of LVT-1s and LVT-2s in the assault on Basio. The 50 LVT-2s used at Tarawa were modified in Samoa just before the battle with 3 8 inch boiler plates installed around the cab for greater protection from small arms fire and shell fragments. Despite the loss of 30 of these vehicles to enemy fire at Tarawa, the improvised armor was considered promising and led to a call for truly armored LVTs. The LVT-A2, A for armored, requested by the U.S. Army was a version which saw limited use with the Marine Corps. The LVT-A2 had factory installed armor plating on the hull and cab to resist heavy machine gun fire. The new version appeared identical to the LVT-2 with the exception of armored driver's hatches. With legitimate armor protection, the LVT-A2 could function as an assault vehicle in the lead waves of a landing. The armored amphibian vehicle provided excellent service when it was introduced to marine operations on New Britain. More than 3,000 LVT-2s and LVT-A2s were manufactured during World War II. These combat vehicles proved to be valuable assets to Marine Corps assault teams throughout the Pacific Campaign transporting thousands of troops and tons of equipment. The overall design, however, left some operational deficiencies. For one thing, the vehicles lacked a ramp. All troops and equipment had to be loaded and unloaded over the gunwales. This caused problems in normal field use and was particularly hazardous during an opposed landing. This factor would lead to the further development of amphibian tractors in the LVT family during the war compiled by 2nd Lt. Wesley L. Freight, USMC. The Singapore Guns The firing on Basho had barely subsided before apocryphal claims began to appear in print that the four 8-inch naval rifles used as coastal defense guns by the Japanese were the same ones captured from the British at the fall of Singapore. Many prominent historians unwittingly perpetuated this story. Among them, the highly respected Samuel Elliot Morrison. In 1977, however, British writer William H. Barch published the results of a recent visit to Tarawa in the Quarterly Magazine. After the battle, Barch personally examined each of the four guns and discovered markings indicating manufacture by Vickers, the British Ordnance Company. The Vickers Company subsequently provided Barch records indicating the four guns were part of a consignment of 12 8-inch quick-firing guns which were sold in 1905 to the Japanese during their war with Russia. Further investigation by Barch at the Imperial War Museum produced the fact that there were no 8-inch guns captured by the Japanese at Singapore. In short, the guns at Tarawa came from a far more legitimate and older transaction with the British. The 8-inch guns fired the opening rounds in the Battle of Tarawa, but were not by themselves a factor in the contest. Earlier bombing raids may have damaged their fire control systems. Rapid counter-battery fire from American battleships took out the big guns in short order, although one of them maintained an intermittent, if inaccurate, fire throughout D-plus-1. Colonel Shoup stated emphatically that the 2nd Marine Division was fully aware of the presence of 8-inch guns on Basho as early as mid-August 1943. By contrast, the Division Intelligence Annex to Shoup's Operation Order, updated nine days before the landing, discounts external reports that the main guns were likely to be as large as 8-inch, insisting instead that they are probably not more than 6-inch. Prior knowledge notwithstanding, the fact remains that many American officers were unpleasantly surprised to experience major-caliber near-misses bracketing the amphibious task force early on D-Day. Sherman Medium Tanks at Tarawa One company of M4A2 Sherman Medium Tanks was assigned to the 2nd Marine Division for Operation Galvanic from the 1 Marine Amphibious Corps. The 14 tanks deployed from Numea in early November 1943 on board the new dock landing ship Ashland, LSD-1, joining Task Force 53 en route to the Gilberts. Each 34-ton, diesel-powered Sherman was operated by a crew of five and featured a gyro-stabilized 75mm gun and three machine guns. Regrettably, the Marines had no opportunity to operate with their new offensive assets until the chaos of D-Day at Basho. The Shermans joined Wave 5 of the ship-to-shore assault. The tanks negotiated the gauntlet of Japanese fire without incident, but 5 were lost when they plunged into unseen shell craters in the turbid water. Ashore, the Marines' lack of operating experience with medium tanks proved costly to the survivors. Local commanders simply ordered the vehicles inland to attack targets of opportunity unsupported. All but two were soon knocked out of action. Enterprising salvage crews worked throughout each night to cannibalize severely damaged vehicles in order to keep other tanks operational. Meanwhile, the Marines learned to employ the tanks within an integrated team of covering infantry and engineers. The Shermans then proved invaluable in Major Ryan's seizure of Green Beach on D-plus-1, the attacks of Major Jones and Major Crow on d plus two, and the final assault by Lieutenant Colonel McLeod on d plus three. Early in the battle, Japanese 75-millimeter anti-tank guns were deadly against the Shermans, but once these weapons were destroyed, the defenders could do little more than shoot out the periscopes with sniper fire. Colonel Shoup's opinion of the medium tanks was ambivalent. His disappointment in the squandered deployment and heavy losses among the Shermans on D-Day was tempered by subsequent admiration for their tactical role ashore. Time and again, Japanese emplacements of reinforced concrete, steel, and sand were reduced by direct fire from the tank's main guns, despite a prohibitive ammunition expenditure. Shoup also reported that the so-called crushing effect of medium tanks as a tactical measure was practically negligible in this operation, and I believe no one should place any faith in eliminating fortifications by running over them with a tank. The Marines agreed that the advent of the Shermans rendered their light tanks obsolete. Medium tanks are just as easy to get ashore, and they pack greater armor and firepower, concluded one battalion commander. By the war's end, the American ordnance industry had manufactured 48,064 Sherman tanks for employment by the U.S. Army and Marine Corps in all theaters of combat. End of Chapter 4 Sidebars, read by Aaron Bennett.